Today I want <clears throat> to continue our little mini-series on uh, a biblical response to an unbiblical decision. And today I want to address a little bit about uh, taking a stand for marriage and the gospel. And we'll be jumping around in your Bible there um, a little bit, but... Uh, We saw on the last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in a decision on same-sex marriage, saying that it's a constitutional right on the basis of that majority's interpretation of the 14th Amendment, um, which many legal scholars says is clearly flawed. And for years, the uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual, transgender... Uh, organization and community have really um, have the courts do their bidding enforcing their will upon America. And it's actually two years um, after the court's majority took an iron gavel and smashed the federal marriage law that these same justices came back and uh, made this ruling to redefine marriage. And this is a definition, this is a ruling that the Founding Fathers clearly had no interest or ever intention of them making. And so the question is asked is, how does a Bible-believing Christian respond? Um, The rule, the courts obviously have ruled on marriage, but how do we as believers respond to this? Because God has clearly spoken on this issue. Um, He has already decided it, and there's no room for debate on it. Um, And last week, we just looked at, in way of review, we looked at a several, a couple points, and I just want to list those for you quickly. First of all, God is still sovereign and supreme. This doesn't change anything. Um, Our God is still in control. Secondly, man is still utterly wicked Uh, We see that the way people respond to this. They're rejoicing over this. Thirdly, we talked about the God of the universe looks with disdain on the rebellion of nations, of kings, of rulers, of people that go against his word. Uh, We looked at that in depth last week. And then the fourth thing we looked at was all human rulers and judges will give account to the one ruler and judge one day. Um, And that should give us hope that ultimately they will be held account. The fifth thing we looked at was any present celebration of sin today will bring future frustration and judgment. It may be grieving to our heart to see what's going on in America, but ultimately God will take care of things. And then we said that Jesus Christ has promised to build and bless only one institution. And that one institution is not the United States of America or the U.S. government. It's the church. And so we need to make sure that we stay focused on what God has called us to do. And we'll be speaking a little bit about that today. And then we said that regardless of earthly circumstances, God's church is to stay fervently committed to God's plan. And that's to win people to Christ, to change, see God change the human heart, transform the human heart uh, one by one as we live and as we give out the gospel, the life-changing gospel, the message of forgiveness through Christ and Christ alone. Uh, 
And then the last thing we talked about was through faith in Jesus Christ, God's enemies can become his children. And so we saw that very clearly in Romans 5, 8, that even though while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, okay? And so the hope, the only hope we have really is in Christ. Well, today I want to talk a little bit about the sanctity of marriage, taking a stand for marriage. Um, Mike Huckabee, Governor Mike Huckabee said this, the Supreme Court can no more repeal the laws of nature and nature's God uh, on marriage than it can the law of gravity. And that's true. Uh, What are the laws of nature and what are the laws of uh, the Lord? And so I have an outline there. The first one is basically a divine pattern. And we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God has given us a divine pattern for marriage. Uh, They can define it all they want. God has already spoken on this. He said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now, we all know that God is neither male nor female, yet we are created in his image. We're created in his image. Um, In spite of the fact that we, as individuals, are made in the image of God, the full image is expressed with two halves of humanity complementing one another, male and female. So a man, an individual, a man by himself, is not fully representative of the image of God. At the same time, the woman by herself cannot do justice to the full spectrum of the image of God either because God created them male and female. And so the two complementary halves of humanity are united in what we call marriage They're united physically, they're united emotionally, they're united spiritually. And the image of God is revealed as a result of that. Um, When you stop and think about it, male and females are anatomically, emotionally, spiritually geared for oneness. Husband and wife joined together represent the full spectrum of the image of God, as we see throughout Scripture. I mean, I rejoice all the time that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I think that that would make for a little boring world. Thank God for the difference between men and women. You know, rather than hassle about the differences between you and your spouse, celebrate them. Realize that God has taken two individual, diverse people, maybe worlds apart emotionally and the way they do things, and put them together and said, now, through my spirit, I'm calling you to be one. can't do that on your own. Genesis 2.24 further declares, God says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Um when you come to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, you see clearly that he upheld this divine pattern. Um, Quoting Genesis, Jesus asked Pharisees in Matthew 19, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave 
his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh that they're no longer one but two. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That was Jesus Christ telling us that he affirms marriage, the divine pattern, the way God created us. In Ephesians 5, Paul even takes that illustration further and he speaks of marriage between a man and a woman as a symbol of this union we have with Christ and the church. And it's going to be fulfilled one day after the second coming of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. You can read about that there. So there's something about a man and a woman and marriage that reflects the fullness of the image of God. And it's a unique relationship between It represents that unique relationship between Christ and his church. So in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it means one man, one woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage, for life. That's his divine pattern. That's what we're given. But marriage is more than just a simple physical illustration of spiritual truths. It's practical. Marriage is practical. When a marriage follows God's design, as the Bible outlines it, it's good for everyone. It's good for men, it's good for women, it's good for children, it's good for the community, it's good for the country, it's good for the world. There's a lot of statistics that support this. Um, people who are married more than a th- are a third more likely to take pride in their work. These are all statistics somebody came up with st- through studies. Nearly a third more likely to rate their health experience as excellent or very good. Um, And you can go on and on and on with the statistics, and that's not what my goal is here this morning. But you have to understand that after thousands and thousands of studies that have been concluded, the studies show clearly that even children do best when they're raised by a mother and a father the biblical template, the biblical design. God's way works. I mean, think about it. Every civilization in history is built upon the institution of marriage. It's the foundation. And so we have to be reminded of that. When someone comes and assaults that institute of marriage, we don't just lay back and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. That's the way of the world. When this God-given pattern is undermined, it's attacked, and the whole superstructure of society becomes unstable as a result of it, I mean, you have to understand, any deviation from the divine pattern invites disaster. And that's exactly what, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has done in their ruling, invite disaster, because we have a divine pattern. Secondly, we see the deceptive perversion. The deceptive perversion There's this deceptive perversion of the divine pattern. And that's what sin is. Sin is Satan taking whatever God creates and perverting it to some degree. It doesn't matter whether it's music or, or whatever. Any and all sexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage is a deceptive perversion of the divine pattern. But obviously today, here, we're talking about one particular sin, homosexual behavior. 
But the word of God doesn't err. It's abundantly clear. It tells us in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, you are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says, if a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they both have committed an abomination. It's an abomination to the Lord. God doesn't stutter. He doesn't have a gray area here. He doesn't say, well, if you love each other, it's okay. No. It's no more okay than if you love a woman across the street you're not married to and have relations with her. That's wrong as well. So why is this behavior a sin? Why is any behavior that's outside of God's divine plan, His template, why is it considered a sin? And I'll tell you just simply, it's because it's openly rebellious against what He says. It's basically, sin is open rebellion against the divine plan, against the divine pattern. It's against what God created, how the order is to be. He's the one who made us in his image, and he made us male and female. And you say, well, that's all the Old Testament you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And technically, you're true. That's true. He didn't, specifically. But he did affirm the original design for marriage, as we just read. He did say that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, that he came to fulfill them. And he said they'll never depart until everything is accomplished. And so... Some people say, well, Christians don't restrict their diets like all these Old Testament laws tell us to do. Why do we have to restrict our sexuality the way God restricts us from the Old Testament? And that's true. Most of us don't eat kosher diets. Why? Because Christ died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he rendered obsolete the dietary, the ceremonial, the sacrificial laws. That's what Hebrews 8.13 says. That's why this communion table is so important. But the principles of morality are still in force. We may not have to follow all the dietary, ceremony, or sacrificial laws because Christ took care of those at the cross. But the principles of moral law are still in place. They don't depart. And the moral law says that this practice is an abomination. And Jesus basically fulfills that and says, you know what, I didn't come to change that. He affirmed the divine pattern of marriage in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And he quoted from Genesis 1 as, we just, as I just quoted for you. So he affirms that. That's, that's important to understand. And you have to understand, people say, well, he doesn't mention it by name. Well, he doesn't say that kidnapping a little child is a sin either, but it is. Okay, I mean, you know, you, you, that's not the purpose of the New Testament. It's not to give us a bunch of lists of things we don't do. It gives us the morality of behavior. So he didn't itemize sin and say, okay, if it's on this list, you can't do it. But if it's not on the list, have at it. No, that's not, that's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, when you get into the letters of Paul, Romans and 1 Corinthians and Timothy and Peter... And even Peter, and, and uh, as he writes in, in Jude as well, uh, homosexual behavior is is a dis, deceptive perversion. It's and it's just, it's in a list of sins always. 
Um, but I want to say this. It's not the unforgivable sin. <laughs> okay, I think as Christians sometimes we, we take that out and we, we set it aside like it's some kind of special sin. Um, yeah, they have an agenda, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But it's no, no worse than adultery. It's an abomination just like any other sin is. Uh, if, a, if a person struggles with sinful behavior and they will repent from that sinful re- behavior, they'll change and they confess it and they turn from that sinful behavior, I don't care what the sin is, that person, the Bible says, that person can be forgiven. I mean, that's what the cross is all about. That's why Jesus came to die. That's really what the heart of God is telling us in his word, that he loves everybody, including those who are struggling even with this sin. But you have to let him forgive you. You have to let him heal you. You have to let him set you free. You remember what Jesus told the woman caught in adultery. He says, neither do I condemn you, but go in what? Sin no more. He says the same to the person caught up in the LGBT behavior movement. But there's a work at hand here, and it's subverting the plan of God. And that brings us to the third point here, the definitive problem. There's a, there's a problem with this. Um, and if you've ever witnessed or reached out to someone who is of that persuasion... Inevitably, they say, well, we're born this way. How can we help it? It's in our genes. God made us gay or God made us lesbian, whatever they might say. And they cite that they have evidence to prove that the gay gene exists in someone's DNA. And, you know... I've talked to Dr. Dan, who used to come to our church, and other people, and they say that has been so blown out of the water, that whole myth of some people having a gay gene and some people not. It's just not credible science. And it's been thoroughly disproven. And yet, unfortunately, it seems like the more you say something, even if it's a lie, people begin to believe it. Kind of like global warming. If you just keep on repeating global warming over, all just going to, you know, the oceans are going to overrun. All this stuff, you keep on repeating it, what happens? People begin to believe it. They don't have the common sense to step back and say, well, maybe this is just cyclical. Yeah, the, the earth is getting warmer, but I doubt humans have anything to do with it. So we have to stop and we have to kind of put things in perspective. And we have to believe biblically that God never made anyone homosexual. The Bible declares the problem, the same problem, is our problem. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have, what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. See, every one of us has that sin issue that twists and it perverts God's original design. And it, it, any one of us, except by the grace of God, there go I. Maybe it's not homosexuality. Maybe it's another sin you're dealing with. 
But our sinful nature is the root of all manner of evil. But with God's help, the Bible says that we can choose not to give in to those sinful desires and tendencies. And there's many scientists that would back up with real science that there's no such thing as a gay gene. There's no such thing as someone being born homosexual. If that's true, then think about all the people who have left that lifestyle and live in a God-honoring relationship. I mean, I don't think God would place in someone's genetic code something that would damn their immortal soul. He wouldn't do that. It's sin. Nobody's ever going to go to hell for being a homosexual. They're going to go to hell for rejecting the forgiveness that we have through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have to keep that in perspective. Well, the fourth thing here is not only is it a definitive problem, but it's also a destructive program. It's a destructive program. This whole group of people that identify as LGBT, you know, the whole segment of that society, you know, they only represent about 3% of our population. But they've become so vocal, they've become so well-organized, they've become so well-funded and highly motivated that they've been able to use politics and the courts and the media, the political system, the entertaining world, even our schools to mainstream their lifestyle choices. And they've been extremely, extremely successful in advancing their agenda. And you say, well, what are the goals of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement? They include basically universal acceptance of the LGBT lifestyle. You can check that off. That's done. It includes, as far as their goals, gaining special privileges and rights in the laws. Check that one off the list. It even includes securing the legal benefits of marriage and parenting for any two people of the same gender. Well, now you can check that off the list. It includes sensitivity training for our children throughout the public education uh, system, throughout the public education system. You might not be able to totally check that off, but it's definitely a work in process. I mean, when you have states passing laws that someone who is a male who thinks they might be a female is able to go into a female's restroom on a school, I mean, we got problems. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's just it's ridiculous. And then also they want to silence critics in the church and in the Christian media. And they haven't been able to do that, but that's definitely something they're working on. And so now you have the Supreme Court who has imposed this same-sex marriage on all 50 states. And LGBT behavior is now a civil right. (laughs) And it will result in basic sexual tyranny that will trump our religious liberty. 
It's already happening with businesses. We've all watched the news. We've also heard different things. There was one photographer who was asked by a lesbian couple to photograph their commitment ceremony. She declined based on her biblical beliefs. She was fined $6,500. The New Mexico Supreme Court ruled that this lady must provide the service to the same-sex couples and sacrifice her biblical beliefs and the price of doing business. That's not right. Aaron and Melissa Klein owned Sweet Cakes Bakery in in Gersham, Oregon. They too were approached by a woman who wanted a wedding cake made for her marriage to another woman. Aaron politely declined based on her beliefs, even offering to recommend some other bakeries who would do it. But they were subject to protest and such hateful speech by the LGBT community that they were forced to close. And then the state of Oregon handed down a $135,000 fine. Or another lady who was the owner of Arlell's Flowers. She was a Southern Baptist. She actually said she serves gay customers that come into her store. Rob Ingersoll, whom she had been serving for years, approached her about doing flowers for his upcoming wedding to another man. She refused based on her love for Jesus and obedience to his word. He's seeking damages that could take her business and her home upwards of $300,000. Despite that, here's what she said. If Rob walked into our store today, I would hug him, catch up on his life. The same faith that tells me that I can't be part of Rob's wedding is the same faith that tells me to love him as Christ does. Never forget what that woman just said. We are called to love them as Christ does. That's the example we should follow. See, we we need to make sure that we're fighting the agenda, but we're loving the sinner. (laughs) We're hating the sin, but we're loving the sinner. Jack Phillips owned Masterpiece Cakes in Lakewood, Colorado. He was ordered by the state to make wedding cakes for gay couples and guaranteed that its staff undergo sensitivity training and for the next two years. And if he didn't, he could face fines and upward to a year in jail. Each time he refused to participate in a same-sex ceremony. Phillips will also be required to submit quarterly reports to the commission to confirm that he is complying with their edict. You all heard about the people in Indiana with the pizza restaurant. Okay, they wouldn't supply the, the food. And it was, it was a hypothetical question. It wasn't even a real question. They said, what if, what if this happened? What if someone came in and told you to make pizza for their, their same-sex marriage? What would you do? And they said, well, we couldn't do it. And based on their hypothetical answer, the owner and his daughter were just overrun by protesters, by this movement. The threats that were left were so vicious on their voicemail, on their email, everything from burning down the pizza parlor to killing its owners, that eventually they had to close the store and they went into hiding. Thankfully, the Christian community there stepped up and they raised $800,000 for them and they just reopened and even offered some of the money to one of these individuals. 
So it, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And you can go on and on and on with these examples. But don't ever think that they don't have an agenda. It has an agenda in our business. It has an agenda in our education. Several years ago, the conservative news magazine National Review laid out the litany of examples of homosexual indoctrination in the Massachusetts public school, state where same-sex marriage is legal. In one elementary school, a, a transsexual was invited into the first grade class to give details of his operation. In another elementary school, children were assigned to play gays in the school kit. Two gr- school skit. Two girls were told to hold hands and pretend to be lesbians. One boy's line was, it's natural to be attracted to the same sex. One ninth grade high school health textbook teaches testing your ability to function sexually and give pleasure to another person may be less threatening in the early teens with people of your own sex. You may come to the conclusion that growing up means rejecting the values of your parents. In Lexicon, Massachusetts, the school treated their second graders to a book entitled King and King, which is a colorful uh, 29-page children's book where the prince searches for a wife only in the end to choose another prince. The story ends with the two princes marrying and living happily ever after. On the last page, the princes, now kings, even share a kiss. This was read to seven-year-olds. David and Tanya Parker's five-year-old son was subject to this kind of nonsense at his elementary school in Lexington, the very birthplace of the War of Independence, for independence. He brought home some pro-homosexual literature in his book bag, and when David visited the principal, he was told that same-sex marriage is the law, so there is no need for advance notice or for parental consent. When David, the father, objected, wanting to have his son opt out of the immoral indoctrinization and refusing to leave until he got an agreement, the police were called, arrested David, and threw him in jail. I mean, like I said, you can go on and on and on. Writing in the leading homosexual magazine, The Advocate, lesbian author Patricia Neil Warren, Nell Warren says this, It is the first fact of civilization. Whoever captures the kids owns the future. She is absolutely right. So guard your children's hearts. It's not just businesses. It's not just schools, education, but it's also churches, which is the last bastion of freedom. But eventually, they will seek to invade churches. They already have, to some degree. Disrupt surfaces, take over uh, pulpits, unfurl banners. They'll do all those kind of things because they're committed to their cause. As in Genesis 19, they're banging on the door of the church. You heard a couple weeks ago where the layer, openly lesbian mayor of Houston, demanded that all the pastors turn in texts of their sermons to be screened for hate speech. I mean, I don't know about you, but my response is, I will surrender to some kind of demand like that when hell freezes over, and then I'll skate on the ice. I mean, I'm not going to do it. 
It's just not going to happen. And, and I think you have to be able to stand up at some point and say, no, there is truth. God has given us the truth. And we're not going to buy into this lie. And we're going to protect our own marriages. We're going to protect our own children. We're going to protect our own families and our own churches. And, and, and we need to make sure that we prepare ourselves for what's coming down the pike. Because it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be a celebration. You know, um, I mean, they basically are commanding us to conform our thinking to their sexual orthodoxy. And if you don't do it, you're going to have to pay somehow. And we just have to be reminded that, you know what, we don't answer to them. We don't answer even to the government. We answer to God. We answer to Christ. We need to be reminded of that. They're not going to stop now that marriage is recommended or recognized, they're not going to stop there. They're going to continue. They're going to want to force this on us. They're going to want to force this on our children. They're going to want to force this on everybody. And if you don't comply, then you're going to be a hater or you're going to be this or that or whatever they describe you as. So we need to have a determined plan. And the determined plan is rather simple. Um, I think probably a lot of us are bystanders in this whole thing. We're watching these events transpire. But you know what? Jesus told us that we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We need to be involved to some degree. But we have to do it in a spiritual way. So here are some basic action steps that you can take. First of all, pray. You need to be praying that God would continue to have grace and mercy on this country. Because, I mean, right now we're kind of under his hand of of judgment. Pray that God's Spirit would revive a church that is worldly. There's a lot of churches that are just giving into this. They're just totally, you know, going right along with it. Pray that the Spirit of God would sweep across those dry bones in our churches and raise them up into a mighty army. Think of Second Chronicles 7.19, that we need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves. God's people seeking Him in prayer. God's people turning from their sin to biblical righteousness. But it all begins with prayer. Remember what Abraham did when God told him that he was about to destroy God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. What did he do? Abraham interceded with God for his nephew Lot and his family. I mean, that's what we need to do. We need to spend time on our knees praying for those in authority over us. That's a biblical thing to do. That's what we're told. Under God, the future of America lies with the people in God's house. Christians who get on their knees, pray, and seek the face and favor of God. Secondly, we need to practice. We need to practice the biblical principles for a healthy marriage as a positive witness you know, the problem with this whole thing is so many people say, well, look at all the, the marriages that are heterosexual. They're a mess. And unfortunately, a lot of them are right. So we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can as believers with our spouse to make sure that our marriage is, is somewhat representative of the love of Christ. That we try hard to die to ourselves daily, to get along with each other, to support each other. Constantly reminded 
Even when we get in disagreements, when my wife and I get in disagreements, I'm constantly reminding my, we're on the same team. We're on the same team. You know, we don't need to be like this. We should be working together. So we need to be practicing that. Um, Christian marriages ought to be models, representative of God's standard. And then the third thing, it's not just pray and practice, but participate. We need to participate in the government that God has given us. He's given us a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it seems kind of hopeless. I get that. But you know what? I pray that you still register to vote. I pray that you vote for the best candidate that represents the biblical standards that are upheld in God's word. I don't care if they're Democratic or Republican. It makes no difference. Or Independent. It's not about parties. It's about principles. I mean, who created government in the first place? Romans 13 tells us plainly and unmistakably that God ordained government. And since God created the institute of government, would He want His people to stay out of it? No. If Christians don't render to Caesar... And if they don't function as the salt and the light in the arena of government, then we're really disobeying what I would say are the commands of Christ and we're allowing Satan to prevail by default. That's why we're in the mess we're in right now, to be honest with you. We need to impact our government as that salt and that light. Use whatever means possible to get the message out that we're not just going to roll over and give up. And that's really what, unfortunately, the politicians have done themselves and they conclude that we have done as people of faith. So we need to be reminded of that. Stop and think the next president will more than likely have the opportunity to make multiple appointments Appointments to a court that could even overturn something like this. So this next election is crucial. Honestly, I look at our country and I'd say, who would want to be president with this mess? I mean, we're in debt up over our eyeballs. We've got problems. Nobody respects us. I mean, who would want it? But you know what? I really believe that in my heart somehow God will raise, hopefully, a man of faith up. And hopefully, God will see to it that our country is spared any further judgment by his hand. So pray, practice, participate. And then the last thing we need to do is proclaim. We need to proclaim the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to change this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11 says, Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, nor sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, Greedy people, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Some of you were like this. What does that tell me? We're not above these people. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. We all need to come to that point in time where we realize that we need a Savior. And it says there that It's in the past tense. And what comes next, really, is God's amazing grace. 
says, some of you were like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, that's good news. That's what needs to happen. That's what has happened to us, I pray, that as, as believers, we were transformed by God's grace. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. We all need the grace of God in our lives. We need to follow Christ's example. He says very clearly, if the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. I mean, only Jesus Christ can break the strongholds of sin. Only He can do that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So let's live and let's preach this message of the transforming power of the love of God in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about religious reform. We're not talking about governmental reform. We're not talking about... Reform of marriage. We're talking about reforming the human heart as only Christ can. Let's stand alongside of these broken and lost people who are trapped in Satan's snare. Let's love them out of their sinful and destructive lifestyles. Let's lead them to Christ because we know that he is the only one who can set them free. For whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. But also let's exercise our rights as Christian citizens. See, we don't give in to despair. We don't just roll over and go, oh, wow, it's all gone down the tubes. Let's just check out. No. We need to continue to pray and participate and practice the things that God calls us to do. The highest court in the land may have passed this judgment. But as I said, God has already spoken. And just a couple practical applications for you. And these are from John MacArthur himself. First of all, he said, no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. No human court has the authority to redefine marriage. That's true. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's kind of weird. That's even what the chief justice said. Roberts, who do do they think they are? They can't just redefine a word and say, oh, now it means this. Secondly, the word of God has pronounced judgment on any nation that would reclassify evil as good, darkness as light, and bitter as sweet. So we have to be praying for our, not only ourselves, but our nation that somehow God would get a hold of their hearts and turn them back to what is right. Because right now, America continues to put itself in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Thirdly, this ruling proves that we are clearly in the minority. That we are a people set apart. That's what we're called to be as the church. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be alarmed by this. It's just simply accelerated the rate of decline of our nation. The country will never rise above the morality of its citizens. And the majority of Americans don't have a biblical worldview as far as I'm concerned. It's all about tolerance. And then fourthly, he said, religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. Religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. In America, the church of Jesus Christ has unprecedented freedom. But you know what? This is beginning to change. And there come a day when we will not have the freedoms that we have enjoyed up to this point. Especially when we're willing to speak out and speak the truth in love. But not compromise. 
Fifth point, marriage is not the ultimate battleground. Think about that. Marriage is not the ultimate battleground. The gospel is the ultimate battleground. That's what we need to be stressing. We need to be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics because that's not going to help anybody. So remember, they need to be saved just like we needed to be saved. And then the last point he made was Romans 1 clearly identifies the evidence of the wrath of God on a nation. And it's simply this. As you read through Romans 1, you'll see sexual immorality is followed by homosexual immorality, which culminates in what the Bible calls a reprobate mind. And this is just showing us that God's wrath has come in full bore on our nation. And we need to be reminded that God is still in control. That we turn to Him. He can get us out of this mess. But it's going to take something of divine divine origin to do it. We need to pray that somehow God would turn their eyes toward the Savior and remind them that when He returns, they will be held accountable. And we need to pray that God will give us what we need in our spiritual lives to live a life that is honoring Christ, not compromising, but being willing to stand up for what's right and yet still love the sinner as only Christ can. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we thank you for the institution of marriage. We thank you for what it stands for. We thank you that you gave that to us in order to really populate and to have fellowship to have families, to have children. And what they're trying to do goes against everything. And Lord, it seems on the outside, you look at that, it's kind of common sense. But but Father, uh, they're blinded. They're blinded in their sin. And we pray that God, you would be gracious to them, that somehow you would remove the blinders, show them their need of a Savior, give them the heart of repentance, that they would turn to you and to recognize the error of their ways and Father, in the meantime, we pray that we'd be focused on what we're called to do as a church, to grow, to be edified in your word, to reach out to the lost with the gospel. The only message that can change their life is the the message of Christ.